Uh, Luke chapter 15, guys, if you guys could open up Luke chapter 15. As you're turning there, we have been, um, we've been going through as a church the entire book of Colossians. We're actually in Colossians 3 now. Uh, we're going to get back into it next week, but I just felt strongly to take a detour into Luke. I'm going to do something crazy that I have not done uh, since we started our church, and that's preach the entire chapter of Luke 15. Um, the funny part is y'all know how I do line by line. We just gonna have to speed up a little bit today. Um, but I, I really am. I, I'm drawn to this text. Uh, I read the st- I've heard the story. You probably have heard the story a million times. I've read it a million times. But for some reason this week, it, and I was going to preach Colossians this week, uh, but this week I felt deeply, deeply connected to uh, to this past, and so I love to share it with you. Let me let me just tell you my, my topic, my theme that I really want to go with today is God's grace towards the lost. God's grace towards the lost. Let me pray, and then and then we'll we'll jump in. Uh, Father, I am I am grateful for uh, for this gathering, for just who you are. Thank you for um, those that know you. Thank you for those that don't know you. Just pray that you would bless our time together today. Give me. Um, just spiritual energy, strength, passion, uh, but most of all, clarity and boldness to preach your word. Uh, help me to be faithful to your text and not add anything, not take anything out, but preach it just like it is in the word of God. Uh, your word is real to us. Psalms nineteen one hundred five says that your word is a lamp unto our feet and that it's a light unto our paths. And so we have no clue of what to do if the word does not tell us. And so as a church, individualistically, I pray that you would bless us and be with us today for your glory, not for our glory, but completely for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Grace towards the lost. God's grace towards the lost is what I want to talk about. I graduated from Cairn University. Uh, It's in Philadelphia. It's actually in in Langhorne, Pennsylvania, the suburbs of Philadelphia, It's actually now called Philadelphia, well, it was Philadelphia Biblical University. I was the first class that graduated as as Karen University. And when I was there, one of the the courses they made made us take for the degree I was getting uh, was a course on preaching. And in the course, the first week, the... Uh, in this, I looked through the syllabus. Y'all know that's the first thing we do. See what you can get away with and what you can't get away with. So I opened up the syllabus and uh, I realized that the first week was, it was an intensive course. So it was five weeks and they crammed, it was four hour classes. They crammed everything in to five weeks. The first week, four hours straight, we just went through parables, the parables of Jesus Christ. And at the end of the class, the, the professor said to me, man, great communicators do not communicate complex situations or complex ideas with complexity, but a great communicator communicates complex things with simplicity. And the, the, the greatest preacher of all times was Christ because he was so simple in his message. He used parables over and over and over again. In fact, he used up, uh, up, up to like 35 parables in his time on the earth, 35 parables. He just walked through and tell a story. And his parables was crazy because his parables his stories were the only ones that you would hear walk away and be like, Dad, did he just, did he just tear me up in that story? <laughs> like you didn't even know you got got until you walked away. Uh, but Jesus was so faithful in that. And, and so in our passage today, he's going to walk through three parables. I mean, back to back to back. It's almost like a Tyler Perry film. He just goes from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. But all of them, all of the parables 
all have the same theme, every single parable that we're about to read. And that is that God doesn't only know about the loss, he cares about the loss. And let me just say to you as a church, if we're not caring about the loss, let's just shut the doors. If we're just, because most churches, you know, 70% of church growth grows by transferred growth, meaning one person leaving one church and going to a next, the next church. We must be a church that is passionate and cares deeply about the loss. Jesus cared about the loss and the way in which he drew them in was with stories. In fact, he says in Mark chapter 4, verse 34, he says, he did not say any t- anything to them without using parables. And so he often used parables, but his parables were really twofold. One of, one of the reasons he gave parables was to communicate a truth to those who wanted it. The other thing he did was conceal truth from those who didn't want it or that were indifferent. And so he often did that. If you read places like Luke chapter 8, and I'm going to get to Luke 15. If you read places like Luke chapter 8, when Jesus tells a parable and the disciples pull him aside and say, what was that? What was that parable about? And Jesus says to the disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets and the kingdom of God, but for others in parables, so that seeing they may see and hearing they may not understand. In other words, Jesus told a parable in Luke 8 to confuse everybody. And so sometimes he did it to conceal truth. In our passage today with the three stories, he's not concealing anything. He wants to reveal the truth. And what he's really doing is he's deconstructing the world as they know it and reconstructing it with his truth as he created it. That's what he's doing in our passage uh, today. So let's, let's just walk through Uh, 32 verses here in in Luke chapter 15. Verse number one. Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. Let's stop right there. Don't read over that and just keep going. Think about this. The sinners and tax collectors are drawing near to Jesus. I just said, if our church isn't serious about the loss, we're missing the mark. Notice that tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Jesus. And Jesus isn't, he doesn't make his word palatable. Like he doesn't soften his words to get people to come. Jesus spoke truth. In fact, if you read the last story in the chapter right before this one, in Luke chapter 14, the Bible talks about how this great crowd came. And when the great crowd came, Jesus says in uh, in verse number 26 of Luke 14, if anyone comes to me, does not hate his father, does not hate his mother, his wife, his sister. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. In other words, Jesus saw a crowd and said, you need to hate your mother, your father. Can you imagine if you came in here and I said, yo, hate your mother, hate your father, hate your sister, hate your brothers. Let's pray and go home. Like that's what Jesus was. That's the type of messages Jesus preached. But the crazy part is we get to Luke 15 and sinners are still drawing near. They're drawing near to Jesus. And so if we don't understand what's happening in verse number one and in verse number two, we will not understand the parables. Hear me. If you don't understand who's in the crowd, who's in the crowd gives us the reason why Jesus preached these three parables back to back to back. And so we see who's in the crowd. Part of the crowd today uh, that came to, to Jesus Baptist Church was tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners. Now, we, we, it just, this really doesn't do us justice because um, we don't really understand tax collectors. We hear that or we've heard it. We've been taught it. 
And we just think, man, tax collectors and roll on with the story. Do you realize that tax collectors were the most hated people in Israel? Now, we think and we were taught that they were hated because uh, because they were shady, which they were. So they would purchase the right from Rome to to tax Israel, to tax the people. They would tax the people. But what they would do is let's just say Rome required eighty dollars for taxes. They take one hundred pocket, 20, give 80 to Rome. And so we think in our minds, man, that's, that's shady. But if that's the only reason they were hated, me personally, I'd be like, man, get over to $20. It's just $20. Move on. That's not the only reason they were hated. The other reason they were hated was because of their affiliation with the Roman government. Like Rome was ruthless. Like I know you saw Gladiator and you saw 300. Like their army was weak compared to Rome's army. Rome, I mean, they literally ruled from England to India. So all of the known world, anything you could have known about the world, Rome owned it. And how, so how do you govern and manage that type of body of land? You do that with an army. Now, the army was, I mean, they would break into your house, rape your wife, rape your daughter, probably kill your family members. But how do you supply, give weapons, feed a massive army like that. You do that through taxes. And so they're hated not just because they were shady, but they were hated because, because they, would, they would literally kill a member of your family and you'd have to pay taxes to keep that army funded and going. And so the dude down the street that's collecting taxes to, to fund the army that raped your wife, you have to pay taxes. And here's the crazy thing. Nobody could do anything about it. There was, no, there was no court that could say, no, don't do that. They would do it and keep rolling. And so these men were hated, but note something here. They're drawing near to Jesus. These men are drawing near to Jesus. The second group that's drawing near is sinners. Now, sinners uh, in, in, in this text is you were considered a sinner purely based on your occupation or your health condition. And so if you were a prostitute, they would say, that's a sinner. If you were sick, in Luke chapter 14, it talks about this guy having dropsy. It means your body collected water. He was considered a sinner. And so when we, when we see sinners here, we're thinking prostitutes, we're thinking sick people. So look who's drawing near to Jesus. Tax collectors who were outcast and hated. Sinners, prostitutes, sick people. They're all drawing near uh, to hear Jesus Christ. See, now if this was, if this was our church, that this would be messy. Like, think about if, if in this room, like if a dude walked in right now with a fitted on and a 40 in his hand, do people still drink 40s? Yeah, I don't know. Y'all know, y'all know. Knock it off. Come on. If a dude was to walk in right now with a 40 in his hand, sit right here, everybody in here would be like, what's going on? Like if a prostitute was to come in straight off the block with a, with a, a small skirt on, you know your, your skirt is small when you got to do this all day. If she walked in with a small skirt on and red lipstick on and sat right there, think about how uncomfortable we would be in this room. Tasha would be covering up her lap. <laughs> I'd be telling the dude with the 40 yo, you got to put that out outside. Let me get a sip. No, I'm joking. I'm joking as a joke, as a joke. I'd probably tell the man, you got to pour that out outside, right? That's what we would do. But these are the people that are drawing near to hear Jesus. Church is messy. Like, stop all this clean and put together, nicely put together church. Church, if we're drawing 
sinners, if we're drawing people that don't know Jesus, it's going to be messy. Man, core team used to laugh at me when we first started um, last year when we first started gathering. Man, I used to tell them, like, man, I'm praying for ratchetness in the church. Like, I, I'm serious. Like, forget all this nicely packaged people. Let's see some ratchet people that are a hot mess. People that you let them in your house and they steal from your house and you still got to love them. Like, I know a pastor, one of the churches we're affiliated with, uh, he, he's a pastor in Camden, and he, man, the stories he would tell you about the people that he engages, like, these people I'm talking about, he actually engages them. And uh, he told me a story, a couple of stories about how he would invite people in to do Bible study in small groups. They would come back and, and steal everything in his house. And you still got to love. That's messy. But these are the people that are drawing near to Jesus. And so if we're a church, just a side note, if we're a church that's just interested in making church comfortable, we're, we're missing the mark. Jesus was drawing all types of people, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. Um, they're all drawing near sick people. They're all drawing near to Jesus. But let's look who else is at the party. Verse number two. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, so in other words, the Pharisees were there as well. Now, this makes the church really disrespectful and, and, and uncomfortable because you have all of these outsiders and then you have the religious elite were drawing near to hear Jesus. The re- I mean, the, the top of the top as it relates to religiosity. Like, I know you think that you got it together because you memorized a couple scriptures You got up at 5.30 in the morning. You prayed one time this week. Like, you think that you are super spiritual. But here's the truth of the matter. Pharisees, compared your religiosity to Pharisees, they would roll you up and smoke you. Let me just tell you, like, they literally had to memorize the entire first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They had to, like, let's be honest, like, most of us in here never finished through Deuteronomy. Like, I know y'all start the one-year Bible app. You get to Deuteronomy 16, you like, Colossians, man. I'm, I'm done. I'm telling you, they memorized every single... Leviticus? They memorized every single verse in the first five books of the Bible, or else they couldn't be a Pharisee. And so they were religious people. They were known for their knowledge and their strict adherence to the law. But they're drawing near. Even though they're grumbling, they're drawing near. And so we get the rest of the, the 30 verses in, X, uh, in, uh, in Luke 15. We get them because of the response of the Pharisees because of Jesus' association with tax collectors and sinners. Verse 2, and the, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners, and he eats with them. And so now he's about to roll right into the three stories. Let's walk through each story and see what we can, uh, what we can get out of each one of them. First is the lost sheep. Very, very famous story. You probably heard it. Maybe you've heard it. Who've, who's heard the story uh, of the lost sheep? There's some stuff in here that I'd love to, to, look, to pull out. Verse number three. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep If he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that he has lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes to his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 righteous 
who need no repentance. And so right now, you got to think of who, who's in the crowd and who's hearing this. Right now, tax collectors and sinners are like, man, he'll leave the 99 and come after me because they would have felt like outcasts. And so when they're hearing this, there's a, there's a sense of excitement and joy that they have that Jesus will leave the 99 and come after you. Now, if you're in here and maybe you, you're, you're one of the ones that strayed away or maybe you just never were connected, whatever the case may be, you may feel like, man, I'm far from the Lord. It's no way the Lord could come after me. He doesn't know how far I am. The, the truth of the story is that he'll leave the 99 and come after you. He's that gracious and, and persistent in his response to you being lost, that he will leave the 99 and come after you. Note something in this story, though. The shepherd has 99 sheep. Why does he care about one? Like, it's not like he's broke. It's not like he lost 99 and has one, and that's his only one, so he has to find more. He's still got 99 sheep, but he leaves the 99 in the open field, in the open country, to go chase after one. So what the, what the shepherd would do is he would count his sheep multiple times a day. Like, if you have 100 sheep, like, you have to, you have to count to make sure that they're all there. And so he would put his hand out, and they would go underneath his hand, and he'd count one, two. Three, many commentators said in this story, the shepherd wouldn't have only known that one was missing. He would have knew exactly which one was missing because he was so acquainted. They were, he was counting them. He was so acquainted. He may have even named the sheep. So he would have known which one left. That should comfort us, especially if you're far from the Lord in here. Thank you for coming. If you're far from the Lord, know that he's acquainted with you. He knows exactly where you are. You are not too far for him to reach. And he cares. Yes, he has 99. But there, the, the story points out that he's so passionate about you. There's a joy and a celebration that he has over the one when it's found that he doesn't have over the 99 that stayed. And so as the sinners and tax collectors are hearing this, they're slapping high fives like, yes, Jesus is on our side. Pharisees are probably upset. They're probably grumbling because they would have considered themselves in the 99 that stayed. But the one that left, Jesus is like, man, I'm going straight after that one. Note something else in this story, though. When he finds the sheep, he does not beat the sheep. He doesn't punch the sheep. He doesn't grab him by his neck. He doesn't break his leg so he wouldn't wander off again. He finds the sheep. And look at what verse number five says. And he lays it on his shoulder and he rejoices. And so when he finds you, it's not, I'm, I'm looking for you because you're in trouble. It's, I'm looking for you because I want to rejoice that you are back into the fold, that you're now considered one of mine. I'm rejoicing over that. When I used to take my kids to public places, particularly stores or malls, um, I would tell them, man, don't go out of my sight. If you go out of my sight, I'm not going to be happy. Do not go out of my sight. And there were times where I would look back, I couldn't find either one of them. And in that moment, most parents are mixed with, with, with two types of emotion. The first emotion that you have is, oh, my God, where are my kids? It's, it's a fear that you have. The second emotion you have is you're thinking in your mind, I better not find these kids. <laughs> like, you know you're mad when you scrunch your teeth. Like, I better not find you. Like, that's how I felt when I would... When, when I, my kids would be gone, but when I greet them, there, there's this moment where I want to hug them, but I want to slap them at the same time. <laughs> Jesus 
is showing us that the shepherd is not like that. There's not mixed emotions for him. He sees the, the sheep and he has one emotion, pure joy. That that one lost sheep is now going to be um, in the fold. And notice that he takes it and he throws it on his shoulders. He doesn't let it pass. This is a direct connection to Psalms chapter 28, verse 9, where David's praying. And David says this, Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. And so when he, when he finds you and carries you, this isn't, you can't lose your salvation. It is, man, I'm carrying you forever. Once you're on my shoulder, nobody can take you off. He carries you and keeps you. And so he does care, and there's a joy that he has over you being lost. And so he rolls right in. This theme of being lost and found rolls right into the next story. And the next story is, it's the lost coin. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard this story. It's very similar to the lost sheep. Look at what it says in verse 8. Or what woman, having silver coins, ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and the neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Very similar story. And so just like the, the shepherd that lost one sheep, this lady has nine coins left. Once again, why does she care about one? It's not like she's broke. One coin is a day's value. She's still got, she's good for the next almost two weeks. Why does she care about one coin? This shows you how persistent the Lord is. If you're in here and you're like, man, the Lord May I'm telling you I'm too far. You don't know what I've been in. Jesus is saying, man, I'll rip the house apart to find you. Like, I'll throw the furniture out. I'll light a lamp. By the way, lighting the lamp, it's not like in here where we come in in the mornings and we turn on the lights and the lights just come on. To light a lamp means she had to extend, expend oil. She had to burn oil, so it cost her something to find you. Do you see the gospel implication? See, the, see, the grace of God it's free to us, but it cost God something. It cost him his son, not just his son, his one and only son. It's not like Jesus had 10 to 15 sons and he could pick one and say, you go do the job. He had one, sent his only son. It cost him something. So this woman is expending her oil here. It's costing her something, but she's persistent. She's persistent and she tears the house apart, tears the house apart just to find you. Let's keep moving. But, but before we move, I do want you to note something in both of these stories. In both of these stories, note who is going after the lost one. So the sheep didn't come looking for the shepherd. The coin didn't come looking for the lady, the, 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 the woman. But the woman went searching for the coin. The shepherd went searching for the sheep. And so the theological check, let me just be very clear with you. You don't find God. If you think you found God, it's only because he found you first. So that moment when you got up, if you're, if you're a believer and, and, and maybe you went to one of those churches where they call you to the front and you say, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, and go down the aisle and you come to the front. Before you did all of that, can I submit to you that you were saved in your seat? You just came up. Salvation is a work 
of the Lord. He searches for us. We don't search for him. You don't have it in you to search for him. Can, can I just be honest with you? There's a, there's a doctrinal term called totally depraved, total depravity. It, it sums up the Bible's teaching on what fall at the heart of fallen man. We don't have. Do you realize that Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful and it's desperately sick? Then it asks a question, who can understand it? Our hearts are broken. Look at Genesis chapter 6 where it says, every intention of man's heart was set on evil. And then it says, continuously. Our hearts, apart from Jesus Christ, are always set on evil. How can an evil heart want Jesus? It's only when Jesus changes your heart that you're able to come to him. And so both the woman and the shepherd are searching, not just searching, but I love that the verse says she seeks diligently. He's diligently searching and looking for you. And so this rolls us right into our third and final story. Now, this one's a little longer, uh, but I love the prodigal son. It's by far the most famous uh, parable that Jesus ever taught. And that's the prodigal son. The prodigal son reminds me of of the Wizard of Oz um, in, in terms of, so the Wizard of Oz that Dorothy is, she spends the first part of the movie wanting to get far away from her home. She spends the rest of the movie trying to get back to home, not even realizing that her, her ruby red shoes or uh, like the Wiz or the live, the live Wiz show, the silver pumps that, that uh, Shanice Williams had on. All you had to do was click them together and you can get back home. This story is very much like that because it's about a, a, a boy that wants to take his father's wealth Go to another country and do him. He don't want to live by the father's rules. He wants to do him. Let's go through this parable together. Verse number 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. Don't run past the fact that this story is showing us that there's two sons. Because what we get here, like especially if you have a subscription above your Bible, it probably says the, prodigal, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. So that would lead us to think that there's only one one son. Can I submit to you that the importance of this story is not just about the young son that went away, but the importance of the story also shows us the one that stayed. We have to look at the one that stayed and the grace of the father. And so this story really should be called, called the parable of the prodigal son, the gracious father, and the older brother who stayed. Because all three play an important role, particularly in who's in the crowd. Keep in mind who's drawing near. Up to this point, sinners and tax collectors are excited that Jesus is on their side. But Jesus is going to show us how his grace is so strong that it doesn't just woo in the sinner, but the religious nut, it's able to pull him in too. Watch. Let's go through the story. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. In other words, you only got your share of the property when the father died. So in other words, the younger son is saying, I'm just act like you're dead. Just give me, give me your stuff. How many of us do that with God? Like we don't, want, we don't want the father. We just want the stuff. And so that's what the son is doing. He's like, give me, give me my stuff. And I, I'm just going to forget you. And look at what he does when he gets the stuff. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son, the one who took everything, gathered all that he had, and he took a far journey into a country 
There he squandered his property on reckless living. Now, the older brother is going to show us that reckless, he's going to define reckless living for us at the end of the chapter. He's going to talk about how he spent the money on prostitutes. And so, in other words, he takes the father's money, goes and pays women to have sex with him. Like, I want you to understand, like, this is a, this is a wicked moment for the, for the younger son. And so he spends the property on, on reckless living. And when he has spent everything, a severe famine arose, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country. And, 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 the, and the, the one who hired him sent him into the field to feed the pigs. Now, he sent him to feed the pigs, but look at what the younger son does. But the younger son, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger? I will arise and go to my father's house, and I will say to him, so what he's about to do now, he's about to rehearse his speech that he's going to give the father. Like, Think about how we used to do that when we used to get in trouble. We used to stay out later than we're supposed to. And on our way into the house, what, what were you doing? You were rehearsing that speech. Well, I'm going to say to him that this had happened and this happened. One, one time my brother and I, my, my parents are both here. My mother, they both will remember this story. My brother uh, and I and our friends went out one night. We didn't go far. We went to a park down the street, and we had Cisco. Y'all remember Cisco? That's, it's, that's liquid crack. Don't drink Cisco. It is not good for you. So my brother and I and our friends go out, and we're, like, putting back these Cisco's, uh, this, this beer, this drink or whatever, alcohol, putting it back, and uh, my brother gets, I mean, sloppy, like, house party drunk. Like, we have to carry him drunk. And we're like, yo, you're messing up, man. Like, we got to go in the house. What are you doing? And so we're carrying him, literally carrying him, walking home, uh, trying to get him. To, we're smacking him on the face, trying to get him to get it together. We get to, we're practicing our speech the entire time. We get to the house. My mother is like, good for you. Throw up. I hope you throw up your guts. Keep throwing up. <laughs> like, she just, like, bombs us. Um, but in that moment, we were practicing our speech. That's what the younger son is about to do. He's about to practice his speech. And look at what he does. He says, I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son Treat me as one of the higher servants. And so he practices this speech, right? He, he's got it in his mind. He has a down pack. This is what I'm going to say. Has it down pack. But look at what verse 20 says. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, by the way, when it says while he was still a long way off, that means that the father was anticipating him coming back. He was waiting. He was looking to see the moment when he would see his lost son come back in the house. And so while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Look at what the father does. Felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. That means forgiveness when he kissed him. And he said, and the the son said to him, father, I have sinned against you. Now he's about to say this speech that he rehearsed, right? Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servant, so in, in other words, he practiced his speech. He's about to say his speech, but there's a line that the father wouldn't even let him get out of his mouth before the father starts to lavish love on him. He's, a, he's supposed to say the last part, which was treat me as your hired servant. He doesn't even get to that. 
That's how, that's how serious the father is about lavishing grace on his son. He starts his speech. The father cuts him off. Look what the father says when he cuts him off. He says to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and put shoes on his feet and bring a fatted calf and kill it. Let's celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is now alive. He was lost and he is now found. And they begin to celebrate. And so he starts to communicate the speech that he rehearsed. And the father's like, no, 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 no. Don't even give me the speech. Bring a ring. Bring the best robe. Put shoes on his feet. Shoes on his feet. See, servants walked around with no shoes on. And so he not only wouldn't let him say, let me be a hired servant. Before he could even say it, he says, put shoes on his feet, meaning this is my son. So he didn't restore him back to a place of being a servant, which he could have did. And the son would have been happy. But he restores him back to a son. Put a ring on his finger. Don't just bring me any old robe, but bring me the best robe, the one that's for honored guests. Bring that robe. Put it on him. Kill a a fatted calf. Let's celebrate. We are about to party. And so right now, once again, tax collectors, sinners are hearing this story, and all they're hearing is, man, God the Father is gracious towards me. He loves me. Once again, Pharisees are there and they are pissed off. They don't understand. How can you say this? But now he's about to reel them in. Why? Because we find their identity in the older brother, which is many of us in here. Before we move on to 25 to 32, let me just say that I fit within the next few scriptures. Like I don't have, I wish sometimes I, when I hear people's stories like Genevieve's story or uh, others that are like, man, I was saved from this and this, and I was saved from, from drugs. And sometimes, man, I'm like, I'm envious. Like, man, that's a testimony. Like, I'm, I'm not saved. I wasn't saved from that stuff. I was saved from church. I'm serious. I'm not joking. I was a religious, like, I would just go in the cycle. I had my list of good things that I would do. And as long as I kept the list, me and the Lord was cool. The problem with me was I never could keep the list. And so, Me and the Lord was cool. So I had this legalistic religiosity mind. So I fit within the older brother. Now, so far, we have not heard from the 99 sheep that stayed. If the coins could talk, we haven't heard from the nine coins that weren't lost. But now we're about to hear from the brother who stayed. What he says is very important to us today. Look at verse 25. Now, the older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. Let me just pause right there and say, if you're in the field and you hear music and dancing, you know that's a party. Like, first of all, you hear dancing, you know that's a party. I, I live next door to a, to a it's a, like an event hall. They have all types of parties. Sometimes they turn into a club. And so Friday, my Friday nights and Saturday nights are shot. All I hear is music. Um, but one night I'm laying in bed. It's about 2 or 3 in the morning. And I hear the wobble. I'm like, (laughs) in my dream, I'm like, I'm wobbling. I knew when I woke up, I said, yo, they partied last night. That was a party. He heard the older brothers in the field. He doesn't even come close to the house, and he hears music, and he hears dancing. So you know this party that the father is throwing, it's it's not no rinky-dink little house party. This This is the party. This is an epic party here. Verse number 26, and he called one of his servants, the older brother, called one of his servants and asked, what these things meant. Verse 27, and he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf 
calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Look at the brother's response here in 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. This word angry here, it, it points to the meaning of on a hot day when a tree is sitting in the sun and it's bursting and the sap is starting to run out. That's how angry the older brother was. But look at why he was angry. This was me, I'm telling you. This is why he's angry. His father came out and entreated him, entreated him. but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your commandment. Yet you never gave me a goat. First of all, it's a fatted calf inside. Why do you want a goat? That's, that's too, like you want a hamburger or you want a goat burger? Like it doesn't even, doesn't even make sense. He says, you never even gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Very selfish. Verse 30. But when, his son, but when this son of yours came, who devoured your property, here, here is how we knew, we knew it was prostitutes who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him, exclamation point. See, you, you, this is where I was. I always had this, this thing in my heart where it was a piece of spiritual entitlement it was, is what it was. Where I felt like, Lord, I'm doing the right things. I'm saying the right things. You know, I know how to do this church lingo. Like, I know I come to small groups. I come to Bible study. I come to Sunday morning service, like I do what I'm supposed to do. You owe me is this attitude that we have. But once again, the father does not celebrate, initially does not celebrate the one that stayed, but he was more joyous over the one that went and came back in. That's how gracious our father is. But we read that the father does go out and entreat him. So in other words, the father went out and begged him to come in. This party, your, bro- your brother was, de- was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. Come, this party's for you too. And so right now the Pharisees, the whole story, I was sitting here like, yo, he's killing the Pharisees. Like he's dogging them. But now up until this point, now we see that the Father's grace is not just toward the lost, but it's toward the religious nut that stayed too. See, that gives me joy. Knowing that God's grace extends far beyond just sinners and tax collectors, but it's for the ones that think that they got it all together. Let, let me just also say in, the, in this story, the, the older brother felt like he should have received better honor based on his performance. Can, can I just share with you that the gospel is anti your performance? In other words, it's nothing that you can do good enough to be accepted by God. Nothing. Not to mention that God doesn't even want you because you're good. He demands perfection. And so he's not looking for you to cross every T and dot every I. He's not looking for you to hit a bullseye every time. What he's looking for is do you believe in the one that crossed every T and dotted every I and hit every bullseye? Do you realize that the scriptures tell us in Isaiah that not even deceit was found in Jesus' mouth? He lived perfectly, 33 years of perfection, and then goes across and gives you his perfection. And so we don't stand on the basis of our performance. The gospel frees us from having to perform. Now, this doesn't mean go out and live a reckless life. Go and sin no more. God forbid that we would continue in sin. But at the same time, it does free us up if you make a mistake We have an advocate that is perfect and righteous and died for your sin, for your sin. Like we get in our minds that 
we're thinking about our neighbor's sin, like the, like the Pharisees. We're thinking about the sin of the tax collector and the sinner. No, he died for your sin. And because of that, you are now accepted, not based on your performance. There's nothing that you can do. There's no, if you kill the list and you cross almost every T, you still fall short. Because the, when you stand before the Father, he wants to stand perfection. And so now I get to stand before the Lord. As a believer in, the, in, in Jesus Christ, I get to stand before the Lord. And I don't have to say, well, Lord, I did this and I did this. We have this, this, uh, this weight system in our minds that we think, you know, if I do bad, 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 then I have to do good, 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 good to outweigh the bad. And hopefully when I stand before the Lord, he won't look at this. Do you realize that even the good that you do is a filthy rag? So even this is really in this pile. So the bad just is outweighed before the Lord. Only basis, the only chance that you and I have at salvation is purely banking on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So now we stand before the Lord. We don't have to say, well, I did this, I did this, I did this. I didn't do that well, but I did this well. So, you know, maybe that outweighs this. No, we stand before the Lord and we say, Jesus did it all. He's, per- he's killed the list. He's done it perfectly. And now we get, to be, um, we get to be accepted. Two things happen on the cross. And I'll get back to this story. Two things happen on the cross. Jesus takes our sin, is brutally crushed for our sin. Therefore, we don't have to pay for it no more. But... He then gives you his righteousness. And so now you are accepted purely based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The last part of this says, verse 31. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours, which is true, right? That the son, the younger son can't get any more property. He's brought back in as a son, but he's already squandered his property. So there is a consequence to leaving. But at the same time, he's like, But the rest of this, when I die, is yours. Why? Because he only had two sons. And so the rest of it was his anyway. Verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is now found. Once again, through the third story that Jesus gives us this morning, we see the passionate pursuit of the father that goes after the lost. The greatest way that we, you and I today, get to the greatest demonstration we have of how far God will go to, to get you is the cross. That's the, that's the farthest, like the cross is what, is what we are accepted by. And so now we get to stand before the Lord and uh, be accepted. He gets, he gets to say, well done to us. Um, not well done because you performed, because you did well, but well done purely based on Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, if you're taking notes, I'm ending here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse uh, number 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. Did you hear that? It's not a result of works so that no man can boast. And so nobody in heaven, like heaven is a no swag zone. You can't walk in and be swagged out in heaven. You can't because all of us in here are in based on the performance of Jesus. And so that takes away you trying to swag. We all get to heaven. Those that believe in Jesus now get to heaven and fall to our knees and worship the one that purchased our salvation. Every head closed and every or every head bowed and every eye closed. You can't close your head. Um,
man, some of you in here are, are the older brother, right? You, you're like, man, I stayed, I did well, I'm doing things that I'm supposed to do. Um, and even though I'm not geographically far, I am spiritually far. You need the Lord today. Some of you are lost. Like, let's just be honest. You are all the way out there. Only you know. You can come in and you can put on your church face. You know, you can act like things are well. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the only thing that will help you to be found is the grace of Jesus Christ. And so I, I, I want to pray today for all of, I don't want to do any altar call. I don't want to call you up. I don't want to raise hands. I want you to wrestle with where you are in relation to this story. The truth of the matter is every one of us are somewhere within this story. Every one of us. Let's pray. Father, I am, um, I am blown away at the fact at how far you go to find us. You'll go to the end of the earth to find us. It's amazing that we don't get to search for you. We are the sheep. We are the coin. We're the younger brother. And even if we do make steps towards you, you run to find us. You rip the house apart. You leave the 99 to find us. And Father, we are grateful for that. Forgive us for walking through life without gratitude towards the fact that you not just rescued us, but continue to keep us. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. Faithfulness surrounds you. You're not faithful because it's something that you've done in the past, but you're faithful because it's who you are. The greatest way we get to see your faithfulness is via the cross. And so, Father, would you stir our affections for the one that found us? I love Jesus' words when he says, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Every single one of us in here was lost at some point, or we're currently lost. Father, would you find us? Would you rescue us? And when you do find us, help us to not have the attitude of the older brother. Let us not think, because I stayed, I should be celebrated. Let, let the celebration be the fact that our king has saved us. Let that be the only thing that we boast in. Thank you for this word this morning. Would you use it for your glory and for your honor? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.